Well, good evening, friends. It's good to see you. I have this week. I have bemoaned the loss of certain words. One AJ used tonight: redound. We don't hear that word very often anymore. We almost never heard the word unction. Another great word, and you don't hear the word quicken. So this week, I want you to find a spot. You can use one of those three words in a sentence properly. And you can tell me next time if you have any success. We need to keep some old words alive. Otherwise, they get replaced with stupid words. Because we're masters of dumbing things down. So let's smart them up again where we can. Well, friends, I'll have you turn to 2 Peter. Look at the last few verses in chapter 1 as we continue our study through this letter. This is a bit of a review. In the first 15 verses, Peter's dealt with a number of key issues. After his greetings and his salutation, he reminded his brothers about many of the promises that God has given, and the promise specifically that he has given them everything they need to live a godly life. Everything they need is provided by God. Then he spoke of a number of virtues that are to be pursued with intentional energy by believers. And these ultimately would lead to spiritual growth and they would help offset any type of lack of assurance in terms of salvation. Because they would be indicative outwardly of the change that's happening inwardly. In verse 12, he began to deal with certain aspects of divine revelation. And he focused on his intention to be an ongoing reminder of the truths of God that had already been revealed to them even after his death probably again referring to his writings. Well, he continues this theme in verses 16 to 21, dealing with divine revelation. And in it, he's going to refer to an event that we're all familiar with um, that reveals certain aspects of Christ that uh, Peter saw as well as um, the others. And then he gives in the last two verses tremendous assurance regarding the reliability and trustworthiness of Holy Scripture, which is important to us today because Scripture is always under attack. And we need to be confident that we're on firm footing when it comes to the Word of God. Well, we'll look at this passage in, under two headings. Two headings. The first one is verses 16 through 18. And here we focus on an eyewitness account. So let me read those verses to you again. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard His very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. So, first point, eyewitness account. We're going to look at three key thoughts under this heading. First of all, verse 16, Christ's coming coming of Christ. Now, the world has always embraced interesting narratives. We know that even the unbelievable can seem rational and become accepted through the mouth or through the pen of good storytelling. And we all love good stories. Peter, however, separates himself and his account from 
what would be referred to as myth or legend or man's imagination, especially from the cleverly devised ones, because there are people who can weave a tale that seems so convincing that we're tempted to believe it, even though we know it runs contrary to what Scripture says. So we know it's wrong, but we can't always find out where the error is. All of these unbiblical accounts given by various individuals to explain certain aspects of their present world would have come entirely from the hearts, minds, and imaginations of men. Not from God, but from men. Peter would have faced, I think, challenging narratives in his own day. Narratives that dealt with religious themes. Stories that presented explanations and philosophies that were not based on biblical teaching or on gospel truth. When we come to chapter 2, Lord willing, in September, uh, he'll warn them in chapter 2, verse 1, about false teachers bringing in destructive heresies, who in chapter 2, verse 3, will seek to exploit them with false words, and again in 3, 3 and following, where he predicts the onslaught of scoffers who ask questions such as, so, if he's coming, why hasn't he come back yet? These false teachers will put forward their own mythical accounts, that will never stack up to the reality, to the truth that we find in Scripture. Now, he doesn't identify at this particular point what these myths and legends might be. He immediately sets those aside and he pursues the gospel. Something which is a good lesson for us, because sometimes we get caught up in the peripheries and we get dragged down these rabbit holes and we never really get back to the gospel. Well, Peter could do that, but at this point he says, no, the gospel is what's essential at the moment. That's what I'm going to focus on. And in this verse, he gives assurance that, well, to put it bluntly, he says, I'm not just making this stuff up. This isn't just a story that's come out of my head. I've not been a, a Tolkien and just produced this, these mythical people and these mythical issues. I'm not knocking Tolkien, but he's not trying to replace Scripture. We have people coming in looking to display scripture, and Peter's saying, Listen, I'm not just making this up. I'm not trying to pull a fast one on gullible people. It's not what he's trying to do. And he, he states that. His message is one that he knows has originated with God Himself and is therefore authoritative. We're not listening to Peter because he's Peter. We're listening to Peter because he speaks on behalf of God, and God speaks through him. So when he speaks of the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's speaking as one who has seen, at least in some small measure, the actual majesty of Jesus. The majesty and glory that rightly belong to Jesus largely had been kept hidden, right, during his earthly ministry. We're going to see there were places where it peeked through at times, um, one that he refers to here. But by and large, it was, it was withheld because he was here in human form for his earthly his earthly ministry. So it had been set aside when he took on flesh and became a man. Peter, James, and John, however, had a rather fascinating experience uh, where they had witnessed not just Jesus' miraculous powers in action. He had seen his healings. He had seen his casting out of demons. He had seen his calming of the sea. He had seen his raising people from the dead. He had seen all those things. They had heard his teachings throughout his entire ministry they understood probably 4% of what it was he taught at that particular time. The Spirit made it clearer to them later on. 
Hillel's had this particular event on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration, where they saw, physically, they were witnesses to a revelation of the majesty and the glory of Christ. So when Peter speaks of the coming of Jesus, I think it's fascinating that he's referring to his second coming, keeping in mind that the example he uses of the revelation of his glory, it's a time when Jesus spoke with Elijah and Moses about his what? Not his second coming. He spoke about his, his exodus. He was talking about his departure. And there his glory is revealed. But Peter here is saying, we're going to see his glory really revealed when he returns. This is when Jesus' power and majesty will be demonstrated in all of its glory and wonder. So Peter, along with the other New Testament writers, such as John, they're claiming here the authority of being eyewitnesses. That's important, that they're eyewitnesses. He's referring to what he, James, and John saw and heard with their own eyes and saw with their own eyes and heard with their own ears. Interesting that here we have two or three witnesses. If you need it in the Old Covenant to confirm a testimony, well, this couldn't go on one witness. That would be two or three. And the Lord was gracious in allowing the three witnesses of this glory. So verse 16, speaking just very briefly about the coming of the Lord. Secondly then, verse 17, we have a demonstration here of Christ's glory. His glory. There are times in Scripture when people come into personal contact with God's glory. Physically come into contact with it. Think of Moses. First example. On the mount, let me read Exodus 24, verses 15 to 17. And we're now talking about glory here. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses had a number of encounters. When we think of the tent of meeting, where he would go in and speak with God, Exodus 34, verse 34. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Those are physical manifestations of Moses coming into the presence of God. We think of the shepherds in the fields the night that Jesus was born and their angelic encounter. And we read that little phrase in Luke 2, 9, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, or shone around them. There was a, a physical revelation of some of God's glory, a glimpse of God's glory. Well, Peter refers here to that other instance in which the glory of God was clearly revealed. And of course, referring to the eyewitness experience along with John and James on the Mount of Transfiguration. You can read about that in Matthew 17 and Mark 9 and Luke 9. Interestingly enough, John doesn't record in his gospel enough. But on that mount, Peter tells us that Jesus received both honor and glory from God. Now there is overlap between those two words and how they're used, honor and glory, especially when it comes to God or to the Lord Jesus because they both fully apply. But there can be a difference. We can separate them somewhat. A glory, I'm going to suggest, is a quality that belongs to God 
and it is shared by Christ. Glory is theirs in the glory that we're talking about in this particular passage. It's something that's external. It's something that's visible. When they're on the Mount of Transfiguration, we're told that Jesus' face shone, His clothes shone. There was brightness. They tried to describe the brightness, and it was so white they couldn't really think of a way other than it's whiter than anybody could ever get anything white. It was super white. They visual, they saw it. The little glimpse of the glory of the Lord. So the brightness of his face and of his garments. For his honor, honor is a little, a little more subtle. We understand that honor is the recognition that someone has attained a position uh, through, the, through their labors and their achievements. Something that tends to be internal, it's more abstract until it is revealed. And the Lord does so in pronouncing this, when He says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. That's the honor that God the Father is giving to Jesus, His Son. This is my beloved Son. I'm pleased with Him. I'm well pleased with Him. Listen to Him. So His claim to eyewitness accuracy and trustworthiness in this account parallels to that of John. Because John refers to being an eyewitness. Back in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 3, it says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So Peter's in a novel position where he has seen things that few others have seen when he speaks of the glory of the Lord Jesus. Well, in his reminder, he gives us a threefold statement from God about Jesus. Number one, God the Father resoundingly confirms that Jesus is indeed his Son. A consequence of that is 1 John 4, verse 15, where we read, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So belief in the Sonship of Jesus is essential. It's essential for a believer, for a child of God, because it brings us in agreement with God's proclamation. And God has said, this is my beloved Son, and so we believe, yes, Jesus is His beloved Son. And we commit to this, this relationship with Him um, through Jesus. Uh, secondly, God proclaims His love for His Son. He says this is His beloved Son. Now, when you talk about love in the New Testament, there are so many, don't take this in the 80s, attitude, but so many love connections. Like, I think there used to be a show on TV, right? A really bad show. But fortunately, it's gone and hopefully off YouTube. But there are, there are love connections that are amazing. Listen to this. So we're talking about here, his son is the son that he loves. Well, what's the consequence of that? Well, John 15, 9 says, Jesus is speaking, he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. There's a beautiful chain. How does Jesus love us? He loves us the way the Father loves him. There is no greater love than the love between the Father and the Son. And yet that's precisely the way in which Jesus loves us. It's a beautiful picture. John 16, 27 goes further. He says, No, the Father himself 
Jesus speaking, the Father himself loves you, he loves us, um, because, so the Father now loves us, why? Because we love the Son. So we've got the Father loving the Son who loves us, then we've got the Father loving us because we love the Son. Well, there's only one reason we love the Son, and that is because the Son loved us first. And we have this reflective love that he has allowed us to display back to him. So it's, it's a lovely picture when God says, this is my beloved Son. The love of God and the Son for each other flows over into the love for those for whom Jesus died and who believe in Him. And then three, God proclaims His pleasure in His Son. That little phrase, with whom I am well pleased. That's what we long to hear in court, isn't it? You know, to come in. It's a child of God. Because the Lord is pleased with us. Well, how can He possibly be pleased with us? Well, it's because He's pleased with the Son. And we're, we're together. We're in Christ. We're found in Jesus. And because He's loved and accepted, we're loved and we're accepted. So He's pleased with all that He's done. He's pleased with all that He's said. He's pleased with who Jesus is in and of Himself. God spoke the same words at His baptism. This is my beloved son. So at the beginning of his ministry, and now drawing to the close of his ministry, we have these bookends of the Lord's proclamation that this is his son in whom he's well pleased. Well, if God is pleased with Jesus, how pleased should we be? There's, there's no room for us to criticize. There's no room for us to complain. There's no room for us to point fingers and say, Lord, why aren't things better for me? The, the implication being that our pleasure should be absolute in terms of Jesus. Who He is, what He's done, what He's doing, what He will yet do. It's like the heart and core of our Christian life. It's really the Lord Jesus Christ as we all know. He's always claimed to be and we're to worship Him Holding it free. Well, the third point under this third thought under this first point is just verse 18. We won't spend much time on it, but here we see Christ's companions, something about his companions. Though John doesn't include an account of the transfiguration in his gospel, he certainly speaks of witnessing Jesus' glory. If you think back to John chapter 1 and the prologue, right? Friends 1 through 18. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. We have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So he speaks about being an eyewitness of the glory of the Lord Jesus. And Peter includes his companions in the statement. He says, We ourselves heard this very voice. Well, it's just me. Ask John. I don't think they can ask James at this point. I think James is in glory at this point. But um, he's confident because it's something that he has seen and heard. And then hopefully they followed through on what the Lord said. Listen to him. And they did. And not only did they listen, now they proclaim what the Lord said. Well, let's come to the second point, the last two verses here, where we see the prophetic words. That was a lot to do with an eyewitness count of uh, Peter. And now we come to the prophetic word. Let me read those verses, 19 to 21. 
And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter is about to remind us that Scripture is God's revelation to man and not man's description or thoughts or interpretation of God. So two things. Verse 19, we see a certainty. Certainty of the prophetic word. In the previous verse, in verse 18, uh, Peter focused on God's spoken word, what God said on the Mount of Transfiguration, the word that he heard. But now he's focusing on the written word, what he would have in his scriptures, which would be our Old Testament, and then the development of the New Testament as letters and gospels are being recorded and ultimately collected. But the question might be asked, what's included in the prophetic word? What's, what's included in that? Some have suggested, well, all the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament could be. Uh, some have suggested all the Old Testament scripture, especially those, those portions, anticipating the Messiah. And then others have suggested all the prophecies of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, perhaps the best set of parameters, according to the context here, would be all the prophecies in the Old Testament from Moses to the minor prophets, because they all speak with a single voice in their prophetic word regarding the coming Messiah. They all, when they speak of him, they're all in agreement. Some say one thing, others feel in this spot, others feel in this spot, but they don't contradict. They're not contrary to one another, but they're supportive of one another. Now, Peter knows this. Uh, back in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 10 to 12, he says this. <clears throat> this is what it says about the prophets. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. It's quite a broad <clears throat> statement in terms of what it could possibly include, but he's talking about all the prophecies that speak of Christ in terms of his coming, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and ultimately his return from glory. Find it all um, in the writings of the Old Testament. And there's this direct correlation, and not surprisingly so, it's something that we would absolutely expect because Peter's going to tell us here that the Bible has one author. There's many men, but there's just one source when it comes to the Word of God. And there's this direct correlation between the words and prophets, uh, prophecies of the Old Testament and the apostolic teachers and writers of the New Testament. Keeping again being that they are in full agreement. One doesn't knock the other. New Testament teachings expand and clarify and demonstrate how the Lord Jesus was the fulfillment in every way of so many prophecies within the Old Testament. So this allows for a strong confirmation that both sources 
are trustworthy. Keeping in mind that the Bible was put together over thousands of years. There, there is no other book anywhere. There's no collection of writings anywhere in the world that even comes close to the breadth of time, the number of authors, and yet the oneness of story that, that, that we find in Scripture. And Peter rejoices in that. And he's trying to confirm to these people, don't, don't be led astray. Because in chapter 2, along come the false prophets. And they're going to start saying things contrary to this. Peter's trying to lay the groundwork so that the people are able to stand firm. So he has this statement of certainty. But it comes with a warning. Because he tells us here, pay attention. Pay attention. You ever get told that? You home stores? I remember saying, pay attention. I, I remember the first time I saw a parent do this with a child, when the child was acting up. You know, and then the child would come up and they're like, locked. You can't look around. You can't look away because dad's looking to rape me. I thought, why didn't anybody teach me that? My kids were little. Why didn't people teach me that in math class? And I could go up to them. Right? Well, that's what he's saying. He says, pay attention. He says, I have a warning here. He says, I have a warning for you. With this encouragement, there's something you need to watch. It's the similar, a similar exhortation, I think, to the Lord saying about Jesus. Listen to him. So Peter's saying, pay attention. He says, and it's in our best personal interest and in the interest of the church at large to give heed to the word that God has given us. Now, isn't that a revelation we've never heard before? Right? What does Peter say to somebody who's going to remind us? It's <laughs> of things that they already know. So I'll seek to carry on in that tradition and remind you of some things that you already know. But sometimes we need a little kick. Sometimes we need a little push. We need some urging to get back to something. We know it's true, but we may not be living it out as much as we should. So the exhortation, as always, is to read, study, meditate, examine, compare, explore. Seek to grasp and understand the Word of God. It's, it's where we get wisdom. It's where we get knowledge. It's where we get understanding. It's all in here. Remember, everything you need, everything I need to live a godly life is found here. Everything we need. That's quite an encompassing statement because life is complex. And yet the Word of God is sufficient uh, to carry us through even the most challenging situation. Now Jesus, we know, is the Word of God. Uh, We get that certainly from John. He's also the light of the world. We get that from John. He's the one who delivers from spiritual darkness by providing light where? In his word. We have the written word that has come from God. God has sent the word in flesh. That was Jesus. He sent the word in written form. That's come through the prophets and the writers of the Old Testament and the apostolic writers of the New Testament. And it's what banishes darkness. When he talks about him being light, his word is light. Uh, we talk about you know, light in the Old Testament and, and how rare it was and how important it was to protect it and to utilize it. Light enables us to see and not stumble, to understand and not be confused, to fear not, or to have courage and not to be afraid. But for the final phrase in that verse, um, I suggest Peter's referring, I think, to the second coming of the Lord Jesus. He refers to the heart. I'm going to suggest that speaks of the subjective knowledge of Jesus that all believers must have as they look to that great day when we will witness the real, objective, 
return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is this subjective faith we have. I have not seen Jesus in the flesh. Um, I long for that day. And I've not seen him in the flesh. But I can read his word and understand from there the kinds of things I need to prepare and look forward to and hunger for that great day when the Lord returns. Well, the last point uh, focuses in on verses 20 to 21, where Peter speaks about the origin and the source of the Word of God. So he's going to speak a truth about Scripture that he tells us must be understood, first of all, if anything else he says is going to make sense. Because people would come back to him and they would say, so what makes you think what you're saying is true? And he's going to come back to Scripture, and he's going to come back to what Jesus said. Remember that the Spirit is the one who enabled them to recall all the things that Jesus had taught them. This is after, um, after Pentecost. And so he has a clear recollection of all the things that Jesus taught. And he can go back and say, I've read it in Scripture, I've heard it from the Lord Jesus himself. He's not saying, I think here, that individual believers can't interpret what they read in Scripture. When he talks about that, no Scripture is a private interpretation. Um, we need to be careful. I think some people are better at interpreting Scripture than others. Uh, those with the knowledge of original languages, those with the knowledge of grammar, both those counts write me off. Right now, grammar is always been a mystery to me. I know when I hear something that it sounds wrong, and I can usually correct it, but I don't know why. I don't know what rule has been broken, other than the fact that a rule has been broken, and we have to fix it. I am the king of commas. You need to know about commas, talk to me. But that's about it when it comes to grammar. People who understand language and understand grammar, they're, and they've studied, and they've sat under teachers who have prepared them, I mean, Paul, one of the reasons he understood the Old Testament so well was the man was a Pharisee. The man had been trained his entire life in the Old Testament Scripture. He didn't just wake up and suddenly he understood the Old Testament. He was a man who studied, he worked, and prepared. And so when you sit under people who have studied and prepared and sat under other people who have studied and prepared, it puts us in a better position to understand what Scripture is saying. But the Spirit can apply the Scripture to our hearts. Can he can and he does. So we don't want to negate that. I just think it's sometimes to be in collaboration with other believers is often a wise thing to do, because we're capable of twisting scripture for our own purposes. We're very good at just plucking. Just pluck scripture fruit. You know, this this phrase here, this phrase over here, and you put them together, and now we have an argument. Totally out of context. There is no pretext. What comes after? Post-text? Not sure. But you need to understand more than simply just the reading of the words. And so it's important for us to, to listen to others and to listen to teachers. Peter, I think, is referring to where Scripture comes from in the first place. Now, it's legitimate for debtors to ask the question, why should I believe what's in this book? Um, the very last word I ever had from my mother. Uh, she was at my sister, Millie's, in a hospital bed, dying. And uh, she was hard of hearing, so you had to yell. And I was trying to witness to her. And the last thing she said to me was, Mark, it's just a book. 
instead of saying words, instead of saying words. But what happened in the next 24 hours, I don't know. Um, who knows what the Lord could have done. But to her, it was just another book. And so people ask that question, why should we believe in this book? There are other books. Why don't we believe in those things? There are other philosophies, other religious teachers. Why do we believe in this one? And Peter would come back to them and say, because the author of this one is God. God is the author of this book. Not others. There are no other gods who can be authors the way this God can be. For example, Moses didn't apply his own deep thinking and interpretation to write the Pentateuch. How did he write Genesis? He didn't even show up until Exodus chapter 2. Well, the only way he could write that book would be for God to reveal it to him. And God did. Now, the other prophets and Old Testament writers didn't cleverly devise a series of prophetic teachings that revealed what was to come and how it should be interpreted. I don't think Isaiah would read Jeremiah or Ezekiel. I'm losing track of where the order is. Ezekiel was, I think, um, in the when they were in Babylon. He used to overlap there. But I don't think they read the other and say, oh, I've got to pick up on that tale. I've got to carry on the narrative. I've got to take that chapter. I've got to add my own chapter to that narrative. No, one author, the author, is God. The instigator of all scriptural writings is God himself. Uh, these writers were those to whom he spoke in time past, Hebrews 1, right? Uh, Hebrews 1, verse 1. Uh, but then came the word of God in the flesh, and came Jesus, and God spoke through Jesus. Jesus would say, I'm speaking what the Father has told me to speak, told me to tell you. So the Father spoke through Jesus. And then after the, the ascension of the Lord Jesus in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And uh, he speaks then through the New Testament writers, through the gospel writers, and through the writers of the letters and so on. Well, in verses 16 to 19, Peter's identified the origin of the apostolic message. He's talking about the apostolic message coming from God. And then in verses 20 to 21, he speaks of the origin of Scripture itself which again comes from God. So this is a clear statement about the source of prophecy. Individuals speaking and recording words given to them by God. And in there, of course, he's revealed truths about himself, about God, and about other essential spiritual matters. So when it comes to the content of the word, man is passive. Right? Man is passive. When it comes to the content, because God is the one who authors the content. <clears throat> Scripture is a work of God. It's directed by the Holy Spirit through human instrumentation. And the extent of this, of course, is noted in those two little words, no prophecy has come any other way. There's no other prophecy that has come other than prophecy that has come from God, at least prophecy that we should believe and trust. People aren't the source. Timothy tells us that. Tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Writers understood that they were active in the formation of Scripture. Uh, Paul wrote the letters. He dictated the letters. I don't think he wrote most of them. He dictated and then he would sign off. You'd see some of the last verses in the letters. He would sign off with his own hand, he would say. Um, but it was God taking the situation and circumstances that he found himself in and his own heart and mind and soul and using that, he brought forth Scripture. He brought forth his truth uh, that is... Un, um, inerrant and unfallible. 
Writers understood that even though they were active in the formation, they were passive in its source. Now the final words of King David, as we draw things to a close here. 2 Samuel 23, verse 2 and 3a. Look what he says. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. David understood. David understood that things he brought forward were things that God had laid on his heart. God spoke by him. Paul in Acts 28.25 And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. Then he goes on to talk about the, the judgment, the condemnation. But notice that he spoke through Isaiah the prophet. That's how God spoke to the, to the former Israelites. And it was the Holy Spirit that did so. And then one verse in James, James 5 verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Peter teaches that these men, these prophets, they're believed not because of their prophetic office, but because the word they spoke was, thus says the Lord. They spoke from God as the Holy Spirit bore them along. We lose that in the ESV, that idea of being carried along, that idea of being held up and moved forward. That's what the Spirit did with these men. And the Spirit was involved in their lives, directed in their lives, and directed in their thoughts, and the Word of God came forth. So Scripture truly is from God, and therefore absolutely trustworthy. So the final recommendation for tonight is that we need to let it be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path and to believe it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for the Word of God. It is a precious gift. Thank you for the written Word. Lord, we have it in our hands. We have it on our phones. And oh Lord, we trust we have it in our hearts. It might be hidden there, Lord, that we might not sin against you. Lord, we ask that if tonight there is anybody here, anybody listening, Lord, who have not yet bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus, He is indeed the very Word of God. And he speaks for the Father. And he acts for the Father. But he is the Savior of all those who put their trust in him. So Lord, we ask that there are those here who have not yet trusted Christ. Lord, they will see him even at this moment. That the Lord Jesus will open their eyes. And they might see a Savior who says, Come unto me and I will give you rest. And may they find salvation by believing in his name. Oh Lord, strengthen us this week. Enable us to love your word. Help us to put it into practice by the power and direction of your Spirit. Grant us wisdom and direction as we do those good works you prepared beforehand for us to do. And we do them to your glory and honor and for the good of your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.